Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Resurrection City Church. My name is Julie. I'm one of the pastors here, uh, and I just want to give you all a special welcome this morning. Whether you've been here for a while or you're just visiting or checking us out, we're so glad that you're here with us this morning. So if you are new or you're just jumping in, we have been, uh, as Zach was saying, looking at this Advent series of hearing from God. So we've been looking at the different people in the Christmas narrative and how they responded when they first heard the news about Jesus' coming. So we're going to continue that today. I'm going to pray for us, and then we will jump right in. Heavenly Father, thank you that you uh, are God with us, that you are willing to come and be here in this imperfect world to bring your love and your hope and your joy and your peace. It's what we long for and we wait for as we wait for you to come back. That's what we celebrate this Advent season. May you speak to us this morning uh, through this story and through uh, the actions and words of Elizabeth that we're going to look at in Scripture. Uh, And just would you speak to us by being here um, in your presence with one another here to worship you. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so how many of you are middle children? Got a whole little section over here. Apparently everybody who's a middle child sits over here. Um, I'm a youngest child, but I was talking with my sister, who's a middle child, uh, kind of about, she's reading this book on birth order, um, and so we were talking about it at Thanksgiving. And uh, if you're familiar with the theory behind it, the middle child is like the, often known as the forgotten child. Um, If you're not a middle child, maybe you have a sibling who likes to tell you this or remind you um, of this. Because the thought is that like the oldest gets all the attention first because they do everything first and it's just exciting and you know new, and then the youngest gets all the attention because they're the youngest and they're cute and you know they're the baby, and then somewhere in the middle the middle child just kind of goes along with everything else that's going on. Um, and as I think about this Christmas narrative in Luke one, I think of uh, the person we're going to look at today is Elizabeth. And I often think of her as kind of the the forgotten character in this Luke 1 narrative, maybe the middle child, if you will, uh, of the story. Because two weeks ago, we talked about Zechariah, and he gets a lot of real estate in Luke chapter 1. If you read through it, he gets lots of time talking about his experience. Um, We're actually going to even come back to him next week. He gets kind of a a second chance. Uh, And then last week, Brett talked about Mary who is obviously remembered at Christmas time, right? We know who Mary is. We know kind of her story and her song. But in the middle of all of that is Elizabeth. And although she's not often featured or talked about a ton, I think we have a lot we can learn from how she responded to the good news of Jesus and how it teaches us about what it looks like to wait well. And so she's. we're going to look at her today, um, and I'm going to jump in and start with how she responds uh, to, we're going to look at both her response to Zechariah and to Mary, but we're going to start with her response to Zechariah. So we're going to start in Luke 1, verses 23 through 25. When his, this is Zechariah, when Zechariah's time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. So if you remember what happened with Zechariah, he is a priest 
And he had this amazing once in a lifetime career opportunity to go into the temple and offer incense uh, in, in the holy place. And this was a really big deal for him. It was very exciting. And then when he got in there, had this crazy encounter with an angel who told him, you're going to have this child. And even though you and Elizabeth are way past the age of childbearing, um, you're gonna, she's going to become pregnant. You're going to have this son, and he's going to prepare the way for the Messiah. And Zechariah struggles with this uh, idea, and his response is one of disbelief at first. And so the angel, not a fan of his response, and uh, as Brett so eloquently put it last week, hits the mute button on him, uh, and he is not allowed to speak until the baby is born. And an ironic thing, I lost my voice this week, um, and so Joel kept joking that uh, maybe God's trying to tell me something uh, like Zechariah, which are the kind of jokes you get when you marry a pastor, and you're also a pastor. But it didn't really make me think, um, because he would have had to go home and try to explain all of this to Elizabeth with no voice. <laughs> uh, and I, I would have loved to be in the room for that, to see how that exchange went. I don't know, maybe he somehow found a way to write it down, and that would have made it a little easier. But even then... I would have been very confused if I was Elizabeth. And even though she has this, you know, kind of muddled explanation probably of what happened, and she doesn't get the angelic uh, appearance to kind of usher in this great news, she still has a totally different response than Zechariah. She believes right away that this promise is going to come true. She says, the Lord has done this for me. He's shown me his favor and taken away my disgrace. So in her time, uh, not being able to bear children would have been something that as a society would have been disgraceful. And so she's, you know, lived her entire life probably feeling this way. And now she believes immediately and says, the Lord has done this for me. He is here for me. So even though Elizabeth and Zechariah, they went through the same period of waiting to be able to have a child, they respond totally different. Zechariah responds with cynicism, and Elizabeth responds with joy. So why? Why do they respond so differently, even though they're probably, you know, in the same household, you know, doing a lot of similar things? And ultimately, we don't know, because like I said, we don't get a ton of information about Elizabeth. We don't see all of her experience. But we do have other places in Scripture that talk about this type of experience and how it can shape us if we let it. And I think there's one verse in particular that Elizabeth's life just really seems like a, a, a test case for and for me. So it's Romans 5, verses 3 and 4, where it says, we not only so, but we also glory in our suffering because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. So in this situation... What Zechariah and Elizabeth have experienced is probably a lot like suffering because waiting can feel in its own way like a type of suffering. They were probably had a lot of grief over not being able to have children. They might have been angry at times, maybe sad, I would be. And in this passage in Romans, it tells us that suffering can lead to perseverance because when we face these challenging things, if we don't give up, if we continue on, 
then we continue to look to God and rely on him, we gain perseverance. And through that, we gain the ability to continue on and through difficult circumstances, and eventually that perseverance turns into character. And ultimately, that character, it shapes us, it makes us who we are, and it ultimately gives us hope. So we see this kind of like chain reaction that happens throughout this verse, and it's something that I think we see in Elizabeth's life. Knowing the difference that we see between Zechariah and Elizabeth and how they responded, it leads me to believe that the big difference for Elizabeth is that she allowed God to transform her while she waited. She allowed God to work that chain reaction of perseverance and character and hope in her life while she waited for a child. Have any of you heard the saying before that a diamond is a chunk of coal that does well under pressure? Uh, diamonds are, I looked this up again, there's so many things I look up just to write these sermons, like random facts that I learned. Um, that diamonds are carbon and they are formed into diamonds deep under the earth's surface and it's through high pressure and high temperature. That's what forms them into a diamond. And the things that, uh, you know, we see here that these extreme situations, these almost hardships, is what makes it a diamond. So you can't become sparkly and strong and pretty without going through those high pressure and high temperature environments. And our character is very similar. We go through these times of hardships or these waitings, these things that feel like a weight on our shoulders, it, that pressure, it has the power to shape us if we allow God to work. Ultimately, it can make us more Christ-like and give us that character and that hope that the verse in Romans talks about. Zechariah tried to protect himself from feeling hurt with cynicism. He tried to avoid the feeling of the pressure. Maybe he avoided some of the pain in the short term by sort of isolating, self-protecting, but in the long run, we see it ends up costing him. Elizabeth instead leaned into the waiting. She sought God in the midst of the pressure that she felt. She talked to him. She listened to him. She waited for him. Some scholars think that we even have evidence that she leans into God in the waiting after she finds out she's going to have a child and in the waiting time before he's actually there. If you heard the, in the verse earlier, it says that after Elizabeth becomes pregnant, she uh, secludes herself for five months. And people kind of ask, like, why would she do that? Why would she hide this great miracle that God is doing, this incredible thing? Um, and people are like, oh, she's trying to hide that she was pregnant. But in the first five months, those are the months that you're not really even showing all that much likely. So it's not like she would have been hiding anything. She didn't have a baby bump to hide. And a lot of scholars think that she actually was taking that time to lean into God and to really seek him to try and understand the calling that having this baby was going to have on her life and on her son's life. So we see that she leans into God, she seeks him, she goes to him in these times of waiting, and ultimately it's what God uses to transform her. And I think that's going to be really important to remember because waiting in and of itself can often feel like a waste of time. 
I mean, at this point, I feel like even when something is taking like a minute to download on my computer, I'm like, all right, I got to go check my email or I got to go do something else, right? So hard to just be still in the waiting because it feels like we're spinning our wheels. It feels like nothing's happening or I should be doing something bigger or better with my life. I should be not stuck in this holding pattern and just waiting for something else. God reframes that for us and shows us that some of the deepest work that he can do in us is actually in those times of waiting. Those times are not pointless. God actually uses them to make us more like him. And you might not see that right away. It might take a long time before you really start to notice it in your own life. And I don't know if Elizabeth was even aware of the work that God was doing in her life in that time. But we do see in this passage and in this story of the Christmas narrative that that period of waiting and transformation really prepared her for her conversation with Mary, which is what we're going to look at next. And as we kind of have been doing in this sermon series, we really want to give you a chance to, to put yourself in the person's shoes. So I want you to consider with me for a moment. Try to pretend that you are Elizabeth. So she's probably, people think she's probably anywhere between 60 and 80 years old at this time. So you're somewhere in your, maybe in your 70s and your 80s, and you've finally been given this miraculous news that you're going to have a baby. This is probably like, the biggest moment for her in her life. And again, culturally, having children was very significant in this time period. She feels like her disgrace has been lifted, this shame that she's been carrying around other people, and she's excited. She's going to have a baby. And then her 15-year-old cousin waltzes in, claiming to be carrying the savior of the whole world, uh, and totally steals her thunder. How would you respond? I want you to really think how you would respond in that moment. Because she could have been jealous. She could have said, I waited 80 years for this, and you're 15. How do you get this now when I've had to wait and wait? And why do you get this honor of carrying the Messiah, and I get the one who just points to the Messiah? I've been following God for way longer, and my husband and I come for come from a higher status. Why do you get this honor? She could have responded out of jealousy. She also could have accused Mary of being a fake. I mean, you have to think that other relatives uh, in their family probably thought Mary had concocted this idea uh, as some kind of cover-up for infidelity or uh, some other thing that was going on in her life. I mean, if, my, if I had a 15-year-old cousin who showed up and told me that they had conceived by the Holy Spirit, I, I might be a little skeptical at first. She could have uh, accused Mary of being a fake. She could have not believed her. Or she could have made it all about herself. She had a big, exciting announcement, too. She could have been like, yeah, yeah, Mary, that's great, but have you heard my story? And, and, you know, oh, okay, that's cool, but I'm further along in this pregnancy thing, so let me tell you about my experience so far. But Elizabeth doesn't do any of that. Instead, she blesses Mary. You look at the passage, it says, 
At that time, uh, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. So instead of comparing herself to Mary, which let's be honest, that's what we often tend to do when we're in situations like that, she shows humility. All that that time Elizabeth spent waiting and allowing God to transform her, here we're seeing the fruit of it. We're seeing that Elizabeth has that godly character that comes from perseverance, and it shows in her response to Mary. Elizabeth is secure in her own identity and in her own story and what God's doing in her life that she doesn't feel the need to try to steal the spotlight from Mary. In fact, she goes even further to serve Mary. Given the customs at the time, Mary should have been the one showing honor to Elizabeth because she was younger and you respected your elders. But Elizabeth goes out of her way to bless and encourage Mary. She says, why am I so favored that you would come to me? She gives Mary the higher seat of importance, even though culturally it should have been the other way around. She also encourages Mary saying, I can see the faith that you must have in order to believe this promise. She said, blessed is she who believes. She calls out this gift of faith and of obedience in Mary and encourages her for it. And if you've ever had someone older or more experienced in your life encourage you in something, you know how meaningful that can be. Especially, I think, for Mary. You know, she's come all of this way. She's had this crazy experience where very few people have believed her. And she's going to Elizabeth because she thinks maybe Elizabeth will understand. Maybe this person will be someone who can be there for me. And Elizabeth is. She understands her. She even encourages her. And I just have to think of what a breath of fresh air that would have been for Mary in her situation. Elizabeth recognizes that Mary is going to be the mother of the Messiah. And she's willing to decrease the emphasis on her own story and her own child in order to elevate Jesus and the excitement around him coming. Elizabeth's perseverance has led to character and it has been shown through her humility. And we can tell that this is something that's a part of Elizabeth's character because she passes it on to her son. So when, we, when John gets older, he starts his ministry of calling people to repent and to turn back to the Lord. And part of his ministry is baptizing people. And then when Jesus comes on the scene, Jesus comes and starts his ministry and he's baptizing people. And John's followers come to him and they say, hey, John, you got to watch out. There's some guy and he's trying to like take all these people that, you know, you could be baptizing, but they're going to him. Like he's trying to steal your thunder. What are you going to do about it? And I want you to listen to John's response and I want you to see if you can notice any similarities between his response and how Elizabeth responded to Mary. This is John 3, 27 through 30. 
To this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given to them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. <clears throat> the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater, and I must become less. Look at how much this mirrors the response that Elizabeth had to Mary. A person can only receive what is given to them from heaven. Elizabeth knew what her role was, what her calling from God was, and she was content and secure in that. We also see the friend who attends the bridegroom waits and is full of joy when they hear his voice. That's actually what happens with Elizabeth. She hears the voice of Mary and is filled with joy knowing that she's carrying Jesus. And ultimately, he must become greater and I must become less. Elizabeth lived that out in her life and we see that she passed it on to her son John as he lives it out in his. If you're a parent, uh, I know I've talked with you, I hear just this concern of wanting to raise your kids in a way that they follow Jesus and do the right thing and have character. And I just want to say, looking at this example, one of the best things you can do for your child is to develop that character in yourself, to allow God to transform you and so that you have that type of a legacy that your kids can observe and can learn and you can pass that on. We see this with Elizabeth and the way she passes it on to John. Elizabeth's joy is in knowing that the Messiah is coming. She knows that he is far greater and that she is willing to decrease herself so she can uh, increase uh, the joy over him. And the time that Elizabeth spent waiting on God and allowing him to transform her gave her the humility that allowed her to respond to Mary in this way. We're also going to see that her time waiting with God gave her hope, which is the last piece of that chain in the verse in Romans 5. Because Elizabeth's response to Mary shows us that she knew what she was really waiting for. Yes, she was waiting for a child, and I'm sure she was overjoyed by her son John. She was also waiting for more than that. The unique thing about Zechariah and Elizabeth's story is that it's like this little small picture of what everybody in Israel was experiencing. Zechariah and Elizabeth were waiting for a child, and yet all of Israel was waiting for a child, waiting for the one who the prophets had talked about, this coming Messiah who was going to be their savior and their king. It had been something like 400 years at this point since they had last heard from God through the prophets. And I have to imagine that the silence was deafening. But the prophet said that there was one coming, a Messiah. And even though it had been so long since God had spoken to his people, they were still waiting. They were still anticipating. And Elizabeth and Zechariah were waiting for a son, but they were also waiting for that larger promise, that larger Messiah. And Elizabeth knew that the Messiah was her true hope. In the waiting she experienced in her personal life, in waiting for a child, God transformed her and that suffering led to perseverance, which led to character, which ultimately led to hope, and a hope that was rightly placed. Not a hope in what she wanted and in her desires for life, but a hope in God coming 
to be with his people. And we can tell that her hope is in the right place in the way she responds to Mary. Even when you look at it, she doesn't center herself. She doesn't center her child, but she looks to Jesus. And she rejoices in Jesus coming even more than the re- rejoicing in the arrival of her own son. And you can see it even in like how many words she uses in her responses. When she finds out that she's going to have a baby, she has a couple sentences there. But when she sees Mary, it's like it just keeps coming out of her. She's overjoyed. She can't help but proclaim her excitement. Her ultimate hope was in the right place. There's a, an old mathematician or sci- and scientist that you probably learned about in high school, um, I vaguely <laughs> remember, uh, called Blaise Pascal. And he's known for saying that there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person. The the full quote says, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the creator made known through Jesus Christ. And Pascal did a lot of research with uh, atmospheric pressure, and he proved the existence of a vacuum above the atmosphere. And so much so that the unit for vacuum pressure is a Pascal, which I, you know, the engineers in the room are probably like, yeah. (laughs) Uh, um, And so he used his personal life, his work, his uh, understanding of the universe to understand what the longing in our own lives is. It's It's a vacuum. It's this thing that can't be satisfied. It just like pulls and and. It's just something we cannot uh, fully describe and fully ever get rid of on our own. Something that only God can fill. A need for something that can't be satisfied by anything else. And every time we feel this longing for something in our lives, right? Elizabeth felt a longing for a child. We can use that to point us towards what we're ultimately waiting for, which is Jesus. And I think there are so many examples of this. Um, When we feel a longing for intimacy, whether that's in relationships or a feeling of belonging, our friends and family, they can meet some of that longing, but they can't fulfill it all because ultimately only God can satisfy that entirely. Or maybe we're longing for significance or recognition and accomplishment or something that ultimately we want to feel like we're worthy And again, we might get that a little bit from things in our life, from our work or whatever it is. Ultimately, only God can provide that true worthiness in our life. Whatever it is that we long for can only truly, fully be found in God. And Elizabeth understood that. She desperately wanted a son, but she wanted the Son of God even more. And we see this play out in the rest of her life. Because if Elizabeth had made her whole life about just wanting this child for herself and for her family, she wouldn't have been willing to let John live the life he needed to live to live out his calling from God. One of opposition and hardship and ultimately death at a very young age. If Elizabeth had uh, held on to what she wanted for her child, none of that could have happened. But ultimately, what she really wanted was for God's glory to be made known. Her only son that she waited so long for, 
She willingly gave to the mission of God because she knew that that was more important. He needed to increase and she needed to decrease. She had perspective and her hope was in the right place. Something that God likely formed through her in that time of waiting. So what can we take away from Elizabeth? What can we learn from this forgotten middle child who had so much to teach us? I think the first thing is to lean into God while you wait. Don't self-protect like Zechariah. Don't give in to cynicism. Don't be a Minnesotan and pretend that nothing's wrong. Lean into the waiting. Pray. Seek God. Carve out space to listen to him and to his spirit, to be still and silent before him. Trust that God will use this time to transform you. It will build your character. You might not see it immediately, but in the long run, God is working in these times of waiting. And we as Christians, we actually come from a long line of people who do this, who wrestle with God over what's going on in our lives, who seek him and talk to him and don't let go until we hear from him. There's a strange story in Genesis, uh, it's in Genesis 32, where Jacob wrestles with God. It's another one of those stories where on face value, you're like, what? (laughs) Because a man appears and uh, he wrestles with Jacob and somehow this man is also God. Again, it's a strange one. But they wrestle through the night, and Jacob won't let go. He can't win or beat God, but he refuses to let go. And at the end of it, Jacob asks God to bless him. And God says, your name will no longer be Jacob, but it will be Israel, which means wrestles with God. And then Israel is the name of the people of God. It's this whole nation, this group of people who follow God throughout all of the Old Testament. Part of our history. It's part of who we are as Christians, what it means to wrestle with God, to be in relationship with Him. We can't win this wrestling match. We can't make God do what we want in our times of waiting, but we can hang on and we can allow Him to work in our lives to help us to be more like Him, to gain character, to gain perspective, and to gain hope. God will transform us in this time, but we have to hold on. And before we get to the second takeaway uh, from Elizabeth, I just want to say that you don't have to be perfect at this for God to still work in your life. We'll see next week uh, that Zechariah, who wasn't perfect at this, we saw kind of his uh, disbelief in the beginning. We're going to see what God does in his heart and how he ultimately responds uh, next week. And so even though maybe Zechariah didn't have the perfect response, God still worked through him and developed in him this character, and this understanding of who he is. And the same is true for us. I admitted a few weeks ago, I tend to be more like Zechariah. I would rather self-protect and be cynical about things. And yet I've seen that God still works during those times of life when I do that. I have learned that it's less of a struggle when I don't do that. Uh, But either way, God is still faithful. So no matter where you're at, if you're leaning into God currently, um, or if it's hard, if it's, if it's a struggle to go to him, just keep going. Continue to lean into God. Continue to wrestle with him. Uh, continue to hang on to him. And then our second takeaway from Elizabeth is to lean into your community. 
I think waiting and suffering can really cause us to turn inward, can make us feel really isolated, and it can be hard then to reach out to the people around us. It can make us feel like, well, no one's really going to understand what I'm going through, so it's hard to, to share that with other people. I think if anyone thought no one's going to understand what I'm going through, it's probably Mary. <laughs> and yet she still goes to Elizabeth, and Elizabeth responds. And I think to, to help us do that, it's helpful to remember Elizabeth's perspective that we're all waiting. We're all ultimately waiting for Jesus to come back and to make everything new. So whether or not, you know, the person in your, your community understands the exact waiting or suffering or thing that you're going through, they can still relate to the feeling of waiting, to the feeling of living in a broken world and knowing that there are other things, better things that we are longing for. They can still be there with you. Mary and Elizabeth had very different life experiences. Mary was 15. Elizabeth was likely in her 70s or 80s, right? That's a big difference. They have very different experiences. They grew up in different places. And yet they came together to be there in the waiting with one another. Bearing each other's burdens can also help us remember that we're not alone in the waiting. And that ultimately, everyone has a God-sized vacuum in their heart that's pulling them, those feelings of longing. And I've found personally, I think it can help us uh, take our eyes off of ourselves and look to other people because it helps us not be so self-centered, helps us not obsess over whatever we're struggling with, and helps us to see that there's more going on in our world and in our community. Helps give us that hope-centered Jesus perspective uh, that we just so desperately need. So lean into your, into your community. Share your experiences of waiting and be there for others when they share their experiences with you. Encourage one another the way that Elizabeth encourages Mary don't give in to the temptation to compare your situation to another person. Be there for one another. Encourage one another. So as we see with Mary and Elizabeth, waiting is a team sport. <laughs> Advent is a team sport. We can't try to do all of this on our own. So we're actually going to practice that now. We're going to head into a time of worship and prayer and communion. And I encourage you during this time to bring your struggles, your suffering, your waiting to God and wrestle with him, lean into him personally. But also, maybe pray for the person sitting next to you. Pray for the people in your life that you know are also facing struggles or facing difficulties. And remember that ultimately all of us are waiting. And we can, we can love and encourage one another in that process. And as we take communion, we remember that God came to be with us and to save us and deliver us personally, but also as a community. And so I, I invite you to use that as a reminder um, that this is our daily bread, this is our Savior, but it's also all of ours. And so pray for one another, encourage one another uh, as we go ahead into this time. I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do not waste our time of waiting. You don't waste our suffering. Uh, even when things are challenging, Lord, that you are with us and that you are working in our lives. You're using all of it for, for your good and for your glory. So, Lord, I just pray 
for all of us as we experience this time of waiting during Advent, where we wait to celebrate the birth of Jesus, but we also wait for him to come back, to fill that God-sized vacuum in each of our hearts, and to make the world new. Would you be with each and every one of us in our own individual struggles with waiting and also as a community? In your name we pray. Amen.